We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Returning guest, Brother Paul Quinnen, is a poet, photographer, and Trappist monk at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. Brother Paul entered the monastery at the age of 17 and has now been a Trappist for over 60 years. His novice master turned out to be Thomas Merton, who eventually became an inspiration to Brother Paul, not only as a monk, but as a writer. Some of Brother Paul's books include works of poetry, like Afternoons with Emily, Monks Wear, Amounting to Nothing, The Art of Pausing, and Unquiet Vigil. And more recently, he published a memoir titled In Praise of the Useless Life. I last chatted with Brother Paul for the podcast in September of 2018, while we were both at a gathering for the 50th anniversary of Thomas Merton's death. Then, when I was teaching assistant for a Thomas Merton course at Christian Theological Seminary in 2019, Brother Paul was gracious enough to walk our class to the Hermitage for a chat. For the past eight years, I've gone to Gethsemane Abbey to, for a visit, and Brother Paul has always been a welcoming smile. He's helped in countless ways with my film, Day of a Stranger, and I'm so grateful for the balance he carries between monk wisdom, Merton knowledge, and his vast poetic imagination. Each time I see him at Gethsemane Abbey, I'm blessed by his playfulness and thoughtfulness in the ways he carries both. Brother Paul, welcome back to Encountering Silence. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, and I've I've noticed you've you've been um, showing up in some articles lately. Um, uh, I love the recent article I read in America by Greg Hillis. Oh yes, where he notes the portion of Psalm ninety one that you pray every evening at Compline, which is, "You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the plague that prowls in the darkness, nor the scourge that lays waste at noon." So tell me, what does it mean to you? to pray something, to chant something like that now amidst an actual plague? Well, uh, you would think it would take on a great, an extra weight, but it always has had some weight for me. And uh, we say the same Psalm every evening for Compline. Everybody knows that Psalm by heart. So in the wintertime, we're reciting it or <coughs> chanting it in the dark. And of course, uh, that's, that's referred to in the psalm itself. So yes, uh, as the, the magnitude of this thing uh, unfolds, even as we are watching, um, that becomes like so much more important. And to say it, you know, uh, for everybody, of course, that's what the whole, the whole divine office is, you know, all the services we do in church are not just for ourselves, it's for the, the whole world. It's the voice of Christ praying. It's the, it's the church's prayer, it's just not my prayer. And so um, I've got other people, you know, maybe who don't have the words in their minds, but the, they're there in heart somehow. Yeah, yeah. It it strikes me, Brother Paul, that as, as a Trappist monk, as a cloistered Trappist monk, 
there's something similar that we're all going through right now, right? Those of us are having to quarantine and stay home versus being cloistered. And obviously there's a big difference in the choice, right? You've, you've chosen to be a monk and to live a cloistered yeah. life. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak to kind of just that similarity or that unity that is between being cloistered and being quarantined and that staying in togetherness. Well, one is compulsory, the other was not. Um, <laughs> we, we choose to be uh, cloistered, and we're more cloistered now than we are usually, though, because as you know, we operate a retreat house, which has, you know, usually about 45 people, anywhere between uh, 30 to 45 people on retreat uh, at any time. And of course, they are a presence and you know, they're visible in church. And now we have nobody in church whatsoever. And then we have the uh, the bookstore and the uh, welcome center. And that's close. Nobody out there. Every now and then I see somebody out there in the in our uh, on our property spending a, 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 a nice afternoon in the fresh air, getting away from their own houses. So that's as much as I see from from you know, the neighborhood. Well, uh, there's a big difference between, uh, I, I think there's something within everybody that really wants to have quiet time. Uh, it, it might've been trained out of us, but there's something about the heart that thirst for that kind of quiet, and for some silence. And most people know, uh, they know it when they get it, they're happy to get it, and that's healthy. And they, and of course, there are a lot of people who, who want more of it and just can't get it. And I think now is the time, you know, this, this is a moment of grace for them. For other people, it's a moment of testing. Uh, they haven't learned how to cope with it. Uh, I was just looking at this, uh, passage from Merton. It's it's from the Thoughts in Solitude. He says, the very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform, and often it is quite beyond their power. We must first recover the possession of our own being. So that's really the, the nub of the issue, is to recover your own being. If you dedicate your life to doing that, then uh, you know you're welcome. The, the silence and the solitude is welcome. Uh, mm. If you haven't dedicated your life to it, now's the time to get started. And I love that resting as as courage, as being courageous. And in your memoir, in praise of the useless life, you write about solitude, saying, "What happens when you enter solitude?" you first get yourself into a scary dark corner, then you see light and it is yourself you have to face, approach and move on from. So for those of whom are in this time where they're still in the part where it feels scary, the aloneness, the solitude feels scary, what would be your advice? Well, I, uh, I recommend prayer. Not everybody is in the habit of a prayer. But the first thing to do is to reach to God and uh, to invoke the companionship of God or Christ. 
Well, most people, the fear that they feel is something they felt before. It's not something completely new. Or uh, they they know their own issues, and I would say maybe it would help to uh, keep a journal. You know, write things down, and then forget it for a while, and then come back to it. You know, go cook dinner, and then uh, maybe sometime later in the day, come back, maybe to this, uh, you know some issue you were you haven't dealt with. The other thing, you know, you can uh, you can get advice. It's good to share your mind with another person because they can see you from a, a, an objective point of view that you don't have. Uh, of course, that's part of our method is to have a spiritual director in the monastery. Everybody has to have a spiritual director. And uh, a lot of people are quite aware of that now. Well, if you can't find one, sometimes a friend can be as good a spiritual director as you know, anybody who is professional with it, um, sometimes it takes a little extra prayer maybe to awaken that in the other person, whether they know you prayed about it or not. I love that answer. And I'm kind of thinking I, I need to ask this question. I'm teaching students right now. We're at the end of a semester and I just finished a course and we um, on spirituality and on religion. And we just finished a whole thing on prayer. And what's what's fascinating in a in an academic setting, and I don't know if you bump into this in kind of a monastery, but I think it fits here with a with the pandemic as well, of people being forced into a silence or a confronting that you're talking about that maybe they weren't ready for. And so sometimes students enter a class because they have to take the class, but they're not necessarily religious. They were not necessarily ready to ask those kinds of questions, but here they are. They're in a class or the pandemic puts it right out in front of them. How do you approach somebody who says to you, you know, you just gave that advice and you say, well, a, a nice first step is prayer. And their kind of response to you is, but I don't pray. I'm not sure I believe, you know, mm. what, what are my first steps in that situation? Yeah. <laughs> because I actually had a student ask that and I gave a response and I'm not so sure my response was that good. <laughs> well, what was your response? My response was, well, we have to try. We're stuck in this class. And, you know, and I, I specifically tried to ground it in a way that made sense for them in their belief system. I, I tried to prod a little bit, see what they mm. thought, tried not to push a particular belief system on them, but tried yeah. to get them to understand what Christians mean by God and Christ and try to point in that direction a little bit. And I'm not so sure I did a great job. Well, another way of putting it, perhaps, would be to be open-minded, to open up your mind and your heart uh, to something that's beyond you, mm -hmm. uh, whether you call it God or not. But, it, it, you know, there's there's a kind of a greater field of, of inspiration and enlightenment that uh, we don't we don't open ourselves to it to begin with, uh, whether, whatever you call it by, uh, whether it's faith or not. It's there's something about our existence in the universe, and the universe re rewards us if we open ourselves to that. Mm. Lovely, right? Because that that's really nice. It, it really is grounded. I love that answer because it's grounded in such a strong truth. We as humans know we aren't the final end, and we are an open book to a universe that's open to mm -hmm. us. 
Mm-hmm. And to yeah. explore that is is the beginning steps. It's that's a lovely answer. Thank you. If I can jump into this wonderful conversation, I think that the maybe the operative words here are mystery, wonder, and wondering. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if I were in your shoes, Kevin, I would say to the student, where are the mystery frontiers in your life? Have you suffered? Has someone you loved died? You know, have you experienced joy that you couldn't put into words? And to to invite the person to find where mystery lives in his or her own body, and then to invite them to step into that. That I guess, for what it's worth, that's that's yeah, I like what that. what I would do. So, okay, now you're starting to make me feel like my answer wasn't too bad because we're starting to circle around some of the things I tried to do. <laughs> I didn't say it that nice, but I was trying to go there. So. Well, you, you know, we're also circling around a couple of things, right? Embodiment and poetry, and we're certainly being quite quite poetic in this. And brother Paul, you are a lover of poetry, and that has been no secret. Are you still spending your some afternoons with Emily? Uh, Emily Dickinson, you read every oh, afternoon? Oh, yes, is that... every day, two or three poems. And uh, I came across one uh, recently. Of course, I memorized it a long time ago. And then, of course, I, when I come across such, uh, I rememorize it. So here's how it goes. There is a solitude of space, a solitude of sea, a solitude of death. But these society would be compared to the profounder sight, the polar privacy of a soul admitted to itself, finite infinity. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. So that's, that's the, the issue right now for so many people, to be a soul admitted to itself. Yes. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's a poetic explanation of what I'm, you know, we're, that last question. It's lovely. And of course, it's, you know, we, we think of ourselves as finite, but we border on the infinite. So in effect, we're a finite infinity. Well, talk about mystery and talk about wonder. We, we don't allow ourselves to, to have access to that. We go around with explanations in our mind about you know, what we're taught and what the church teaches or, or the Bible and so, so on and so forth. Those are formulations, but you don't come to the reality unless you give yourself time to do it. Whether the formulas fit or not, uh, it's the important thing is to start with the experience. How do you have the experience? Well, shut up for a while. Maybe it'll happen. You know? 
hopefully it'll happen. And sometimes, you know, it, it might come easier if you're taking a walk in the park or around the, even around the neighborhood. You know, I have a friend who every morning before it gets late, it's probably six o'clock in the morning, I think it is, he'll take a, a walk through the neighborhood. And I don't think a, a sensible thief would be out at six o'clock in the morning. So it, it would be safe, I believe, for anybody to go out at six o'clock in the morning or earlier than that, and just just have time by yourself. But uh, when when I took these walks with him, I said, it was a, another friend of mine and, and him, we, this was up in Alaska at, in Anchorage. And I said, let's do this in silence. So the three of us were walking in silence for an hour around this, this it was a very nice neighborhood. You know, anybody could do that. I love that. Brother Paul, what, where's the beginning of your, your love affair with poetry? It's obvious that it brings such a playfulness to you and a joy and excitement and wonder. And yeah, I'm just wondering the origin of when you fell in love with poetry and when you really lived into it. I mean, even the fact that you're memorizing poems and I know every time I see you, you're working on new poems. And by the way, if you have any to share with us, we'd love to hear them. But yeah, when did you when did you first fall in love with poetry? Oh, it wasn't just all at once like that. It was a more gradual process. Of course, you know, the, uh, the fact that we're reciting in Psalms every day, the fact that we read the prophets and listen to the parables, in a monastery, you're in, in living in an environment, a poetic environment, and the surrounding is, you know, this uh, the, the countryside that we live in. Uh, I think it disposes the mind to open up to poetry. I, I really didn't start writing uh, much until maybe 1970, and then it kind of built up a little by little by little after that, and as time went on, well, found out that the people who knew poetry were taking me seriously, so I was writing it more often. Uh, as it is now, I'm not really, uh, I'm kind of dried up for the, for the last four or five months. <laughs> I think I'm not writing much at all. And it was just the way my mind works. Here was kind of like a, a uh, crossing point. As I used to read a lot of philosophy and, uh, you know, theology and things like that. And as I got more busy with my work, I didn't have as much time to read. So I started reading poetry because you get a lot in a little bit. So a little bit goes a long ways. And so I started reading more poetry to, to have you know some content. And then memorizing things helps me to carry the content around with me. So it, uh, it's nice, you know, just to kind of, it's like going over a song. You know, sometimes you're, when you're working in the kitchen or something, you, you know, you got a, a song comes up in your mind and it sort of lifts your spirit. Well, the same thing can happen with a poem. I have to ask, because I am a fan of Emily Dickinson. And so do you have a particular volume that, or, or volumes that you work with? That because it sounds like you read a little bit of her every day and you're memorizing. Are there particular ones, or are you just going online and looking for oh, her work? Well, or? No, I, I I use the Thomas Johnson edition. Okay, okay. Uh, Nineteen fifty 
five, I think it is. Okay. Like that. It's a supposedly complete. We've probably asked you this question before, so forgive the repetition, but I, I have it on good advice that monks are fairly comfortable with repetition anyways. So what advice would you have to the beginning poet, to the person who is just starting out on his or her journey into poetry? Maybe authors you would recommend they read, assuming yeah. Emily's at the top of the list. Precisely what you just said. Read poetry and read good poets. It's not just a matter of reading an anthology and going down the list and taking everything in. But what really helps and what helped me is to find somebody you can identify with and stay with them. And uh, whether you're trying to imitate them or not, it, it's, they'll have an influence on you. Uh, it might be a mistake to try to imitate them, but it'll happen on its own accord. I would say uh, Merton was my uh, influence early on. I mean, uh, my poetry tended to look more like Merton's. And then um, as I got involved with uh, Marty Gervais at Black Moss Press in, in Ontario and was reading his stuff, the, uh, there was a certain style of poetry that he was publishing, uh, which was accessible and not terribly intellectual, but good. So I kind of took that as my direction. And I, my poetry is, I would say, accessible. Uh, I don't try to be too elitist or have these. I'm not into word poetry where you just got a string of words that to, to some people might sound good or might sound, might sound good to you, but not to anybody else. <laughs> For me, poetry is an integrative force. You're, you're combining thought and feeling and perception and experience. Uh, early on, I was trying to synthesize my intellectual life with the, you know, the, the theology and philosophy with uh, the poetic life. And I was very interested in Wallace Stevens at that time and T.S. Eliot because they have an intellectual uh, side to them. There's a strain of intellectuality. Uh, I would say I've gotten away from that pretty much. So integration, integration is um, um, maybe a key component simply to write a poem in, in order to integrate an experience you've had. Uh, whether you're trying to, it's maybe not so much a matter of writing a poem, but a matter of trying to assimilate it and put something into words for your own sake. It's important to write for, if, for your own sake to start with, but that should never be where it stops because it's a matter of communication and you have to be able to, to write in such a way that it's accessible to other people. In a way, you have to stand outside of yourself and take an objective look at what you've written. It may take a month or two before you have the ability to do that. But when you do, then it certainly um, has its rewards. And of course, the other thing is to have somebody else read the poem, poem uh, especially a, another poet or somebody who knows how to read poetry and get uh, advice. A lot of what I'm hearing is reminding me of the importance of habit and also 
the difference between habit and ritual. In my experience, habit can become ritual, but ritual can't become habit. And you write a little bit about this in your memoir. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, first of all, the difference between ritual and habit and also the importance of, of them. Well, of course, ritual is a, a sacred action which may or may not be habitual. You may be uh, on doing it at rare intervals, but it's, a, it's an action done with the intention of entering the sacred or honoring the sacred. And of course, in a monastery, you're doing it every day. Uh, it can became it can become a, a routine, and, and that's another term in this. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you can you you have a habit of, of brushing your teeth, or you have a habit of taking a walk every day, but that is not simply routine. It's something you do for the you know for your own benefit. I you know it's it's okay to have routines. Because there's there's a, uh, not a strict distinction between routine and habit. Every day cannot be an, a new invention. Uh, you, you need these ha habits, these structures to your life, and you don't have to give it a second thought. But if you do it mindfully, then something new can happen or something creative can come out of it. So a, a habit can be a very... Uh, supportive thing. A routine can be a deadening thing. A ritual should always be a, 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 a vital thing, thing. Mm. and it should always be done mindfully. Do you think some of these practices that you've mentioned, like the journaling or like the poetry, can become rituals? Oh, yes. If I, I definitely, I, a lot of people do journaling as, as a way of, you know, um, communing with, you know, the higher things. I, I do a chronicle every day. It's communing with the lower things. <laughs> I, I tend to be um, cut off from my, uh, uh, what you call sensate, from just the ordinary daily things that happen. I, I tend to live more in my mind. So I need a balance to that. So I write down what I did yesterday. And at, at sometimes it's hard to remember what is it I did yesterday. <laughs> and that's, that's an indication of, you know, the way I'm put together. And it's fun to go back uh, a year ago. What was I doing today a year ago? And the things I completely forgot about. Or somebody I would met and had taken up to the hermitage or even maybe had supper with. And, so, and I look at the name and I say, now, who is that? <laughs> well, I, I guess, so I need to keep a chronicle in order to, to, to keep balanced. You give me hope because I always worry that I'm always in my head as well. And so <laughs> to, to hear that there's <laughs> a monk who is uh, reminding themselves to pay attention. What did I do yesterday? <laughs> I feel like I have a comrade. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me of the examine, the Ignatian examine, and just this this beautiful idea of 
being present to your day, being present to, yeah, brushing your teeth or having a conversation with somebody that, you know, on the surface, that may not sound very spiritual, but I think that's profoundly spiritual because where does God meet us other than in the moments of our day? Oh, yes. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way, you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.